I think I had this blind determination that I would get it right eventually. For a while, John said that I was getting it wrong differently every time. He's like, you're trying something new, but it's not getting better. And I'm like, well, I will keep trying wrong things until I do the right thing. The nice thing about a really disastrous launch is that there's nowhere to go but up. So I was the product manager of an eight-person company that was in imminent danger of going out of business and sitting on 20,000 units of plant sensors. The CEO and boss just kind of said, hey, if you want to try some market experiments, go for it. That's how I became a marketer. It's like, okay, you could build something, it could be the right thing, but if nobody knows you exist, it doesn't matter. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, managing partner at GGV Capital. On this episode, I'm joined by my good friend, Crystal Huang, as guest host. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. Also, check out Founder Real Talk past episodes, including Stuart Butterfield from Slack, Sarah Fryer from Square, Nate Wacharzik from Airbnb, and many others. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Also, I want to tell you about our sister podcast, 996, a bi-weekly show on tech entrepreneurship in China hosted by my fellow managing partner at GGV Capital, Hans Tung, and our colleague, Zara Zhang. In the show, they interview movers and shakers of China's tech industry, as well as tech leaders with a U.S.-China cross-border perspective. It's a fantastic show, and I've learned a ton from these interviews. You can take a listen by searching for 996 in any podcast app. Without further ado, here's today's episode. Today on the show, we have Edith Harbaugh. Edith is the founder and CEO of LaunchDarkly, and she was the initial inspiration for starting this podcast, Founder Real Talk. Edith, we'll talk more about your podcast later, but first, can you give us a brief background on yourself? Cool, I'm Edith. I started off in engineering. I actually have some patents on deployment on large portal management systems. I got tired of building big systems that nobody used. So I thought if I was a product manager, I would do a little bit better. I, I was working with these really brilliant people, and we just kept building stuff that missed the mark. When I became a product manager, I realized how hard it was to figure out what to build. Like there's the how, which is tricky, but the what, you know, what's the market, who's going to use it, what are the right use cases is, is, is much harder in some ways. After that, I went to join a, a tiny IoT startup before IoT was really a word. It was called Plant Sensor. And then I discovered why marketing existed. Because we built this plant sensor that could measure light, soil, temperature, and then tell you what plants to grow. We thought this was brilliant. Nobody knew we existed. The joke is the month we launched that we sold 12 units, we had expected to sell around 1,000. And the 1,000 was like our bare minimum of like, okay, that will be, that's okay, so instead we sold 12. The nice thing about a really disastrous launch is that there's nowhere to go but up. So I was the product manager of an eight-person company that was in imminent danger of going out of business and sitting on 20,000 units of plant sensors. So my, the CEO boss just kind of said, hey, if you want to try some market experiments, go for it. That's how I became a marketer. It's like, okay, you could build something, it could be the right thing, but if nobody knows you exist, it doesn't matter. So I got that plant sensor to a million dollars of sales, and that's how I learned marketing kind of on the fly. So that's, 
that's my background. I've done how to build something, what we're going to build, and how to bring it to market. And from all that, I kind of thought there was just a better way to build software, which was how I started LaunchDarkly. Thanks for that intro, Edith. As I mentioned earlier, you're inspiration. Your podcast, Be Continuous with, with Paul, is really great. And it was fun being a guest on your show along with Armand Dadgar from, from HashiCorp. That episode came out recently, and that was fun to, to be reminded of that conversation and talk about like you know disastrous product launches or starting slow and having nowhere to go but up. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of those open source projects at HashiCorp started that way. But I, I want to go back to the, the founding of LaunchDarkly. You, you've said that your biggest career mistake was not starting LaunchDarkly sooner. Why did you wait? And looking back on that time when you founded the company, what advice would today's Edith give the Edith of that time? You know, I don't know if it was a mistake. I wish I had started a company sooner. I don't know if I could have started LaunchDarkly sooner. So I, I co-founded it with John Kodemal, who's been a college friend, you know, brilliant, brilliant guy, had been an architect and manager at Atlassian, so super, super sharp guy. And we started LaunchDarkly basically because of all our frustration with the way software was built. And I think to have had the deep frustration that we had, we had to have suffered the flip side, which is we had to have been frustrated. Right. Like if we hadn't felt this pain, we wouldn't have come up with this idea. You know, nobody had built a product like ours when we came to market. It just hadn't occurred to anybody. And for us, it was just this wedge that we had to have worked a while before we had it as an idea. So I don't I don't know if it was a mistake to to wait to do launch Sharkly. And in fact, there were a lot of tides that needed to happen for launch Sharkly to exist. Like people needed to have moved to the cloud. Mm. Like ten years ago, just AWS was kind of this laughable thing, and now like you go to reinvent it, it's one of the biggest conferences of the, in the tech world. Well, how about thinking back to your your early days as a founder, and what do you wish you knew then that you know now? We started the company pretty much four years ago. I was thinking about this while I was biking around because I have a very cyclical mind. I wish I had told myself, and I, this is advice I give other founders, as soon as you can afford it, start trying to outsource the stuff you're not very good at or that you don't like doing. And I think at the beginning, so it was my, my co-founder John and myself, and we started the business with $10,000 each of our own money. You know, So by necessity, we did everything. Like We had nobody else to do it. And then we hired our first engineer, and still I was just doing everything that was not direct coding. And I kept doing that, I think, about honestly a year too long. Like, I remember I would go to City Hall and file the paperwork for a DBA. <laughs> you know, I was on the phone with our healthcare company because they'd somehow double billed us, refunded a credit, and then thought we still owed them and kept sending us very nasty letters when, in fact, like we were completely square. So, like, all this stuff sounds really trivial and would just take suck up like a day or two of my time. And I just wish I had gotten a biz ops person a lot sooner instead of just thinking, oh, it's not a lot of time because all those little scraps of time add up to a lot of work and they're just a big distraction. I have seen people prematurely optimize, however, and it'll be a two-person company and, a, and an assistant. I'm like, well, what, what are you doing? So there's a balance there. As soon as you have the money and as soon as something becomes a distraction, find someone else who's not you, the founder, to do it. 
Going back to you know the founding story, so you've known John for a while, right since college. How did you guys decide to pair up? And you know you're both engineers by training, so how did you also decide who who did what in the beginning? <laughs> well, I'm an engineer, and John is computer science, which sometimes we tease each other. Um, it was interesting because our lives had taken different paths. As I said, I started off in engineering, then became product. And I remember talking to him, and we said, "Hey, it would be really cool if we started a company together, like because we think we have really complementary skills." Like he's brilliant, brilliant, brilliant coder. I had gone down more of the business track. We're like, this could be a really dynamic combination. And that's how we decided to do it that way. And have your respective roles shifted over time? Has your role taken on responsibilities that were different from what you expected at the outset? I had no idea how to fundraise, like none. I was just painfully bad at it. I had been an engineer. I had never pitched a company to anybody. I remember I was starting the company and I was getting advice from my old boss at TripIt, because I'd been a product manager and marketing at TripIt. And Scott Hintz, who's this really nice guy who co-founded TripIt and been part of Hotwire, said, Edith, why don't you just go pitch your B-school friends who are now VCs for practice? Because he, you know, he's gone to Stanford Business School and he probably had dozens of B-school friends who would love to hear his pitch. And I'm like, I went to an engineering school with 120 people. I don't know a single VC. <laughs> Like there's nobody to practice with, so we actually <laughs> practiced our pitch with John's brother, who's a lawyer in Philadelphia, <laughs> and this went about as bad as you could expect <laughs> in terms of like practice for the real world. So the first time we ever pitched was, believe it or not, at a YC interview. So it was about four years ago. We'd applied, and they had this rule back then. I don't know if you have it anymore that you can apply once per hacker news names. So actually, we applied with one idea, and then we kind of took a flyer with another idea. First idea got completely rejected. John and I kind of texted each other like, wah, wah, you know, we're still sad. And then at 11.30, they accepted the second idea. And I remember because I took a screenshot of the computer and I texted it to John because he didn't believe me. And I was like, look, 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 we did get an interview. Then we were scrambling to prepare, like... None of us had pitched before. We both had our still at our full-time jobs. So we pitched John's brother. The interview was a massacre. The Philadelphia lawyer yeah. as preparation for the YC interview. Yeah, okay. and the, the actual that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> the actual <laughs> YC interview was an absolute disaster. And then after that, I was like, okay, one of us has to get a lot better at pitching because we can't both be this bad. And so I got a lot better at pitching. <laughs> Let's uh, shift gears a little bit and maybe drill down on that topic. What were some techniques you used to improve, apart from just practice, or if it was just practice? And when you're giving advice, or if you could give advice to other founders to try to avoid some of the rocky road you traveled, what would you say? Oh, it's funny, because actually after this podcast, I got into another accelerator, Alchemist, and I now teach a class on how to fundraise. Okay, great. Let's let's hear the punchline on that. Well, so I've taught it the same class 10 times. The people I've taught have gone on to raise millions and millions of dollars. That's awesome. So that makes me feel really good. Like, you know, they've raised their seed, their A's. That makes me feel good that they have learned from everything I say, don't do this. <laughs> so what are the biggest don't do's? Well, the advice I usually give them is specific around angel fundraising, but I think a mistake a lot of founders make is to not make an ask. And the ask can just be, hey, you've heard our story. Do you think I'm fundable? And like what feedback you have, which is actually a very face-saving maneuver for both parties of saying like, hey, I'm just asking for advice. Here's my story. Do you think this is something that you would want to fund? And if so, why not? And then people can either lean in and say, 
yes, this is very interesting. Or like, here's some other feedback. Or also, you know, I don't really invest in your space at all, Mm -hmm. which is a good answer to find out pretty early. You've raised now a few rounds successfully. How's your style evolved? You know, what have you tried to get better at that's had success for you? In my mind, I'm still the same awkward person, but I suppose I'm not. I think it really helps just naturally as you progress in a business to have actual real people using it. Like the earliest stage is really the hardest because you're just pitching an idea. I call it the team in a dream stage. Mm. And that's the hardest because people just are looking across the table at you and saying, hey, do I believe in this person, yes or no? And when it gets further along, you have more and more proof points of, hey, I have this many customers, here's the retention rate, and you start to have team, dream, and traction. Let's chat a little bit about, you referenced like four years ago was the right time to start Launch Darkly. What was your inspiration? Talk a little bit about like what prepared you and your background to know that that was the right time. And you've talked about the fact that Launch Darkly is like, you're creating a category. And so we'd love to hear a little bit more about how you think about that. Well, those are two really separate questions. Okay, so let's um, do one at a time. Why did I feel like four years ago was the right time? Yep. So the, this is one of the things we learned in pitching of not what not to say. Um, so the original reason why we started the company is because John and I wanted to work together. And that's how I would pitch originally. I'm like, hey, I have this buddy John and we like hanging out. Don't pitch that way. It might be true. <laughs> <laughs> But it's not what an investor wants to hear. I can um, vouch for that. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I thought this was this huge point in our favor that like we really wanted to start a company together and everybody's like, get out of here. So we'd actually worked on about, depending on how you count it, four to eight ideas before lunch darkly. Like so we knew we wanted to work together, so we would work ten hours a week on an idea until that idea came to some sort of conclusion. And so Launch Sharkly was the idea where we're like, yes, this is the right one. But we had been working together for about, I think, a year and a half or two on other ideas before that. And the other thing I learned, not to say what I was pitching, because I'm an engineer and I would be really honest, what I said right now is I started Launch Darkly because I'd been part of many, many, many bad software releases. And that would be also the point where the investor would kind of be like, I got <laughs> I got another coffee to get to. <laughs> You know, it's just like, <laughs> like I want to work with my friend, and I've messed up many software releases. Where do I sign up? <laughs> <laughs> That's not how you pitch a company to somebody. You you pitch it with, you know, hey, we're going to change the world. We're going to help everybody make better software. So, notwithstanding that start, you still managed to eventually raise money and sign on a lot of customers, right? So, what did you do right the first time? I think I had this blind determination that I would get it right eventually. For a while, John said that uh, I was getting it wrong differently every time. <laughs> He's like, you're trying something new, but it's not getting better. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, well, I will keep trying wrong things until I do the right thing. And I Eventually was, the blind squirrel finds the nut, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I truly believed in the business. I truly believed in what we were doing. I thought I was a terrible fundraiser, but I was like, I can fix this. Like, This is mm-hmm. a fixable thing. I, I later read this book about the growth mindset. Mm-hmm. And I think I had this, you know, I was just like, fundraising is a fixable skill. So that, that's that's what we did. So like a lot of other startups, when you guys got started, you were serving other startups and small companies primarily, I think. You've got a lot larger customers now. Actually, it's funny. Our first real customer, and I can say this now, was a pretty mid-sized company. Okay. So we'd put up a landing page 
you know, kind of describing our product and people could sign up for more information. I would call every person who signed up because that's what you do. And this guy called up from a real estate buying firm and he described his problem. He's like, I want to do feature flagging. I want to be able to toggle features on and off. I want to pick who gets what when. I want to do dark launches. And I'm like, we have the right product for you. So our first customer was actually a five-figure deal. You know, so our very first deal, like I had to deal with procurement. Mm. And so that was something that was from the very start was just we were getting these larger customers because they had this pain point. You know, that's not that typical and probably pretty hard for a young company without a lot of customer experience or a lot of infrastructure to deal with larger companies and procurement cycles and the like. How did that go? Um, what did you learn through that process? And what kinds of skills did you guys need to pick up as a company to, to deal with that environment? I think it helped. And this is again why I think LaunchDarkly was the right time is that I had done enterprise software before. Like I had worked at Vignette, which was kind of your classic enterprise software company where we would consider a small deal 400K. Mm-hmm. You know, so I had been responsible for a line of business revenue there. I'd gone on the sales calls. You know, I knew kind of that side of it. So to me, I was just like, oh, I guess I'm doing enterprise software again. But I already had all these skills of like, okay, here's here's how you do it. Uh, shifting gears a little bit, you talked a little bit earlier on about you know hiring and scaling the founders. How have you built out your executive team and which VPs did you think were important to hire first and what have you learned from that experience? Yeah, so this is something we're still in the middle of. Uh, originally it was, my, as I said, myself and John, when we were at Heavybit, we were a pretty tight eight-person team. We weren't big on titles. We did a daily stand-up with everybody. After we did our A, you know, we said, hey, we got to start building out an actual leadership team. The first person we hired was a VP sales, and that was a huge lesson learned because he was with us, and he just up-leveled everything. You know, he had this professionalism that before we didn't have. He was very enthusiastic. And then ultimately, it turned out that he he said he really wanted to try selling to a technical buyer because he hadn't done that before. And after about four months, he said, "I don't want to sell to technical buyers anymore," and he left. And that was hard because I had to step back in as VP Sales for six months. The hire we made after that was we got our VP, we got a joint VP Product and Marketing, and that was pretty much the team until we got. B, and then we've been trying to fill out the rest of the team from there. We hired right after B, we got a finance director and a customer success director, and then a VP engineering. And we're right now about to hire a VP marketing. How did you go about finding candidates? Right for early stage companies, it's hard to compete in the marketplace for top talent. So, where did you find your good leads for leadership or for recruiting in general? For execs, let's say. <laughs> it's funny. Um. Half have come to us because they already knew us. Like our VP product was somebody I knew at Heavybit, and we got in a lot of lunches. And one day he came and he's like, "Hey, I would like to be your VP product." And I was like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> our VP. Were you and, stealthily recruiting this person, or were you really surprised by that? I was surprised because we listed a job for product manager. We didn't think we needed a VP product yet, and he wanted it. And we talked about it. And I was like, "Okay, this makes sense." Our VP engineering was actually, it's funny, it was John Kodamal's old boss from Atlassian. So someone who I had actually known for about, because John and I had been friends, I know this guy also, his name is Jonathan Nolan. I'd known him at least 10 years. So I, I thought that 
that was really interesting that this guy, Nolan, wanted to come over and be our VP of engineering after 12 years at Atlassian. So he wanted to be part of it. And that John, his old report, is now his boss. Which is actually a question I ask in reference calls, which gets very weird reactions from people. So I do reference calls for everybody on the leadership team that I'm hiring. And one of my reference questions, uh, I'll ask like a CMO if they're giving a reference call for somebody who worked for them. Given an opportunity, would you work for this person? Mm. Not would you hire them, but would very you interesting work question. for them? And some people get very offended. Like they're like, why would I ever work for you know so and so? And then the best people I think thinking in the spirit of what it is that like, hey, your career might be thirty or forty years long. Maybe you might end up working for them, and if yeah. so, what would you think about that? It's cool that the folks you've mentioned that are now in executive roles of the company are people you or John or both of you have known uh, for quite some time, and you know that obviously de-risks the hires, and it also allows you to probably hit the ground running a little bit faster with people that you know. Love to talk to you a little bit about the culture of the company. How intentional have you been about trying to build culture, and how would you describe the culture of Launch Darkly? Yeah, we try to be very intentional. Uh, to go back to stuff you don't tell a VC. Sorry, Lynn. Um, <laughs> they, there could be other VCs listening. <laughs> you know, John and I wanted to start a company that we wanted to work at. You know, like John left a very safe, secure career at Atlassian. You know, they loved him. So we both wanted to be at a company where we wanted to be at. So we do stuff like um, we bring in lunch every day for the team and we have big tables and everybody can sit down and eat together. And this is because we really want people to collaborate. You know, I know that people kind of are breaking up into little cliques because we're big enough for 40 people now, but still, if you sit next to an engineer and you're a salesperson and you sit next to a marketing person, it's harder to build up a silo. Like It's harder to say, oh, those salespeople over there, if you sat next to Joe yesterday. So do you have assigned seats for these lunches? No, no, or? no, no, no. Uh, we're, we're, not a, we're not a cult. But do, you, do you, <laughs> but do you try to somewhat intentionally get different functional groups sitting with each other? Yeah, we try to mix it up. And the other thing is, particularly because we're hiring a lot of new people, it's, it's scary when you're new. Like I, I was telling you before, like I moved down to Austin for work, and I remember the first, like, I think three months, I just ate lunch by myself because there was no, I didn't know anybody, and that didn't really make me fond of my job. So not very motivating. No. So like we do stuff that if you're new, you always know that you can go get lunch and sit near people. We also assign people a buddy lunch because we're trying to be part of the community where you'll get assigned somebody to go out to eat with, and we'll pay for that lunch, like a thirty dollar lunch just to try to mix up people who might not otherwise meet each other. We have other things. I am a real stickler for no laptops in meetings, unless you're presenting, because I think it's really corrosive if you have a meeting with a lot of people who are sitting there all typing on their laptop. It's like either you need have to be in this meeting, in which case close the laptop, or you have something else to do, in which case leave the meeting. But I think there's this myth that you can be like, I am in your friend and checking out the newest video and also paying attention to the presenter that I have not found true. Hmm. I don't know, Glenn. Uh, definitely, you know, those single-threaded meetings are more productive. But obviously, people have a lot to do. So, do you guys, given that you have the no laptop role meetings, do you try to minimize the yeah. number of meetings or the, the length of those meetings? Well, that's the other thing. Um, so, one of our values is respect for each other. I'm like, if you feel like you shouldn't be in a meeting, like talk to your manager about whether or not you should be in it. Of course, there's some meetings where you just have to. Like if it's a staff meeting, 
But if it's some other meeting, say like, hey, maybe I don't need to be in this meeting. I think a lot of companies build this culture that going to meetings is power. You know, like I'm important because I got to go to this meeting, and it's ultimately very destructive. Because if you have an entire company that just goes to meetings, you're not actually doing anything. Is your culture one where like performance is like a, a key priority, and if so, how do you how do you measure performance, and how do you try to um, motivate people to perform? We're big on OKRs. We're still tuning how they work, but like at the beginning of a quarter, we'll say here's our objective, our key results. Everybody will agree to them. Like we'll do check-ins throughout the quarter. Everybody kind of knows if they're on track for their OKRs or not. We run a, a month of SKU, so April 30th is actually the end of our quarter. Mm. So right now there's a big push where everybody's trying to get their OKRs done. I like to think that if people feel that they're doing stuff that is important and they know that it's being noticed and recognized and reward, they will do a good job. Going back to the podcast that you've started, um, you've talked about how that's been a helpful driver of you know raising the profile of the company and also driving leads. How did you start putting together that podcast and how has that helped the business? <laughs> so the joke is, um, so we're doing real talk, right? Yes, we are. The joke is I did the podcast because nobody would do it with me. So we moved into Heavybit when we were four people. and you know We were just a baby company. And Heavybit wanted us to do a podcast about you know kind of our our early days and our trials and tribulations. So they wanted to get me and the rest of the company in a room and have us talk. And I asked John and PK, our engineers, if they would do it with me. And they both were like, no. And I'm like, why not? And they're like, because we like really polished, professional, like this American lifestyle podcast, not you just you sitting around talking. And I waited another week and then I asked them again. So I'm, I'm persistent. And they're like, still no. And I waited a third week and I asked them again, they're like, still no. And I'm like, okay, you can't make somebody podcast with you. Like, that's a pretty boring podcast. And uh, what happened was I had gone to dinner with Paul and we really like talking to each other. I was like, Paul, will you do it with this meeting? He's like, okay. So it was this accident. It was because my, my own company wouldn't do it. And now the joke is uh, John, my co founder, is like, why didn't I get to do the podcast? I'm like, you said no, dude. <laughs> Buyer's remorse or seller's uh, remorse in this case. Oh, it's just easy, and he would. I mean, he he came and did a guest spot with me and Paul, and he's like, "That was fun," but yeah. I, don't, I don't want to do this whole time. Yeah, I heard that episode. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about your personal hobbies. You're an endurance athlete. Yes, um, you've ridden your bike cross country. Yep, you've finished many ultra marathons and hold some records in terms of number of finishes. Yes, pretty crazy, pretty incredible. <laughs> uh, you're doing that while you're. Also running a startup, which we know is a full-time job. First, like, why do you do endurance <laughs> athleticism? And second, how do you balance those two things if you if you are able to balance them? So I, I, I love running. I like being outside. I like biking. Like I ran my first 10K when I was 12. And then my first marathon when I was 19. So I've just always kind of liked being outside. Wow. I had this interesting thing where when I started Launch Darkly, I actually gave a talk about this at first round, but um, I'd run a lot of marathons with 50Ks and 50 miles, and I actually was on the cover of Ultra Running Magazine for running 100K, uh, Miwok 100K. And I really wanted to run 100 miles. And when I started Launch Darkly, I suddenly had a lot more time at home, like because I'd been on the road pretty constantly. I wor- was working for Concur, and I was doing international expansion. Mm. So I would travel for like three and a half weeks to 
Hong Kong, Singapore, Sydney, and just constantly on the road. When I started Launch Darkly, I had no money and I had no travel. And I suddenly had time and shoes. So I was I started training for 100 Mile when I started the company, basically as an outlet. Uh, I was living off my savings. So John and I had put 10K in to start the company, but we both said, let's not pay ourselves, you know, because what's the point? I suddenly didn't have money to go out to dinner, didn't have really money for movies, didn't have a lot of the money things, and running is pretty cheap. So I trained for 100 miles, and I finished it. And then I ran two more. And then what happened was it just started being a lot of work. Mm. Like I would be on these long runs, and I would start thinking about work. Like I would be like, oh, I wish I was back at my desk so I could work on this email or this blog post or something else. So the joke is that I retired from my hobby. So I did a last 50-mile run, and now I only do 50Ks. So 50K is 31 miles, and that's pretty easy to fit in. Not for me or Glenn. But. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, like a, that's, that's just like a Saturday morning. Saturday morning that turns into evening. <laughs> <laughs> well, training for 100 miles is a full-time job. Training for 50Ks, you could, you could kind of fit that in with everything else. So Edith, Crystal, and I like to... End our founder real talk sessions with a hot seat game. Uh, oh, you didn't tell me this, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to ask you a couple of questions. Uh, they're not trick questions, but just just tell us the first thing that pops into your head. So first question for you: Tell us somebody who you admire in business context and why. Oh, it's funny. The first thing that popped in my head was Ann Trace and my running coach, who's just an amazing, amazing woman. She She's in her 50s now, and she still holds numerous world records. She ran Comrades. She won Western States. Just amazing woman. In business context, you know, Aaron Levy, I admire a lot. Uh, I think he's shown that you could be a first-time CEO and really mature a lot. You know, he started a company from scratch. It's a great one. What's one thing that you believe that most other people would disagree with? I don't think you can be too old to start a company. We were in our 30s when we started it. I don't think that was too old. So there's still hope for me. (laughs) (laughs) I I think also that I think you can be a better founder when you start it in your 30s because you've managed people before. You've led a Mm -hmm. team. You have all these skills. You know how to run a meeting. Mm -hmm. You know how to do enterprise sales. Like If you're you're 22, it just doesn't occur to you that these are things that you need to know. Does the same hold true if you're almost 50? Absolutely. They just, okay. did, they just did a study where they did a longitudinal study of founders. It was in TechCrunch. They said, mm-hmm. like, actually, the best founders are older. Okay. Are, uh, are you thinking about stopping the VC thing and starting a company? Well, you always have to have a, a, an escape plan just in case <laughs> Crystal doesn't let me work at GDV anymore. I got to have something else to do. And it's not going to be running 100 mile races. I don't think. Okay. Last hot seat question for you Tell us about a book that you really enjoy. Other people who are in your shoes, founding companies, running companies, ought to read. I'm just reading Accelerate right now by Jez Humble, and that's about software delivery. It's really good. It talks about high functioning teams and the characteristics of it. There's a lot of stuff I like in it, just about how you, you talked before about performance, about how building a culture where there's safety. Like Google did this big study about the best teams were not necessarily with the smartest people but with the people where people felt like they could do good work that mm. they, there was an atmosphere of trust you know because everybody makes mistakes 
everybody is perhaps trying to learn a new skill or develop something. And if you have an atmosphere where if you're trying to do something new, you're beaten down or punished or said you're doing that wrong, you build this culture where people never want to try anything new because they see it as, if I try something new and I don't get it right the first time, I'll get punished, so I will never try anything new. Versus I think a startup is, hey, we're trying something new, let's not do stupid things, Like, let's, but let's give ourselves the freedom to try some things. Mm. Like right now, the team is on the road a lot because we're trying a lot of different conferences, and I know that some of these conferences are going to be not the right place for us, but that, that that's fine. Mm. You know, others will be unexpected places where we'll get a lot of new customers. It's great, so it's called Accelerate? Yeah, it's called Accelerate. It's by Nicole Ferguson and Jez Humble, and it just came out. Great. Great. Okay. Edith, thanks so much for joining us on Founder Real Talk. Well, Glenn, are you still going to fund us after I said it was a bad pitcher? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, we'll have to see when your next round comes around. Hopefully you'll talk to us about it. I know there's a long line of people who would like to fund you. (laughs) Well, this was really fun. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. We're produced by Ted Carstensen and his team at HeavyBit. We want to thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a multi-stage venture capital firm based in Silicon Valley, Shanghai, and Beijing. We've been partnering with leading technology entrepreneurs since 2000, from seed to pre-IPO. We invest in globally-minded entrepreneurs in consumer internet, e-commerce, frontier tech, and enterprise, and have invested in over 300 companies since inception, including the likes of Airbnb, Alibaba, HashiCorp, Opendoor, Slack, Square, Wish, and many others. We're very proud of the 30 companies who've achieved multi-billion dollar valuations to date, and we expect several more in the future. Find out more at ggvc.com.